Hello, and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. Today on the show, I welcome Dr. Joe Eckler, licensed psychologist, to talk about their practice and specialty, chronic invisible illness. Welcome to Next Quest Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Joe Eckler, who will be talking about chronic invisible illness. Dr. Joe Eckler is a licensed psychologist and author of the book, I Can't Fix You Because You're Not Broken. Welcome to the show, Dr. Joe. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, awesome to finally meet you. Um, so, got a bunch of questions. Remember, if you don't want to answer a question, you can always say next question, no questions asked. Um, so let's get started. All right. Bring it on. So <laughs> my first question is, what are your credentials and experience? So, well, you mentioned one of them. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I have a doctorate in clinical psychology. I um, am also a registered yoga teacher. I trained as a death and mourning doula. And um, I'm an author. So I think that's all of them. My experience has been really varied. I trained in community mental health, a university counseling center, and then a big VA medical center. And I went on to do more work in the VA for uh, not quite 10 years. And then I worked um, in nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities as I was building my private practice. And then I'm doing work in private practice now. All the things. All the things. All the places. <laughs> um, so in your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? I, I know. I, I do not. Uh, the short answer is just my energy level. We'll talk more about chronic illness later, but it takes a lot of spoons to do the things to do with insurance. And so right now, in order to keep my costs low as I can for everybody, I have to not take insurance. I feel that it is a lot of spoons for sure. Yeah, I, I do accept work insurance. With, oh, yeah. Sorry. I do work with some EAP programs. I work with Modern Health, if anyone, employer has that benefit. And um, I do some work with the AWP EAP here in Austin. Cool, cool. Um, do you have a sliding scale? I do. It's a honor system, no questions asked, um, sliding scale. And then I also do evaluations for letters for gender affirming procedures like hormones and surgeries. And those I do on a pay what you can basis, uh, literally pay what you can. I love that you do that so much. Aww, I love doing um, that. Yeah, I mean, I, I refer to you often, you know, you're one of the few psychologists out there, I think, who does that and in a pay-what-you-can capacity. Well, I know transition adds up quickly, so. I Indeed it I does. 
Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments available? I have kind of peeking into the evening, not too late because I'll get really fuzzy headed. And then the, the weekends I need to do the things um, that I need to do to take care of myself. Cool. Is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? I don't know if it was a career, but I worked in movie theaters for 10 years. Cool. Like throughout high school and then college and grad school. So it feels like a career. That's very cool. I grew up, uh, my grandparents owned a video store. Mm -hmm. um, so I worked in the video store from like age eight. <laughs> <laughs> officially up until I was about 17, 16 or 17 when my grandmother officially fired me. But that's oh. a story for another day. <laughs> Interesting story. <laughs> um, what drew you to being a therapist? I was kind of doing it anyway. I was that person that everyone would come and tell everything to. You know, I'd be mm -hmm. waiting for the bus and someone would come up and tell me their life story. So I figured I needed to get some more skills and tools and have a, a better container for helping people. That's great. I like the way you put that, a better container. Yeah. I like conceptualizing it in that way. Yeah. Thanks. Um. What modalities do you draw upon? I was really lucky because in the VA, you get a lot of wonderful training. So I got training in all kinds of things. Um, I can throw names around, but I got trained in prolonged exposure with Edna Foa, um, who helped create it. And cool. Yeah, it's cool. Very cool. And in cognitive processing therapy and um, what else? But my... A few other things along the way, like mindfulness-based CBT, but my favorite that I got training in was acceptance and commitment therapy, and that one is the one that I pull from the most. What do you like about acceptance and commitment therapy? Well, the name is terrible. The acronym <laughs> is awesome, <laughs> um, and it, it sounds really kind of heavy when you look at the name, but it's a really playful kind of therapy. And I like how realistic it is. It, it is already based on the idea that there's stuff that we experience that's painful that's not going to go away. Like we're human, we're going to feel pain. And so many people I work with have issues that aren't going to go away. Like if you had trauma, your trauma is there. You can't go change your past unless you go find like Marty McFly or something. <laughs> and, you know, and or if you have chronic illness, it's probably not going away. So it's less about trying to reduce symptoms and more about helping people develop a relationship with whatever comes up for them, thoughts, feelings, experiences, physical sensations so that they're more free to choose what they do and, um, and do things that are important to them. So making a life that feels more worth living, even mm -hmm. while carrying this other stuff, but not in a suck it up and drive on kind of way. Right. I'm hearing it more in like a radical acceptance kind of similar kind of way. Kind of. Yeah. I think the word acceptance gets so misunderstood. Um, right. Like, people assume like, oh, acceptance means I have to like it. Um, right. I, I kind of like the word acknowledgement a little bit better. But like, okay, I acknowledge that this is reality. Yeah, I feel that. So today we are talking about chronic invisible illness. What drew you to working with this issue? I, well, I have it. <laughs> and then the, the places I've worked, like the VA, like nursing homes, uh, of course, there's a lot of visible illness and, and disability there, but there's also a lot of invisible, um, like traumatic brain injury and things like that, that you can't necessarily see. And also, I think people are just drawn to me who are dealing with chronic invisible illness. So it's, it's sort of like kind of a little bit of it's me and also like people just come to me start working with it and it can be lonely mm -hmm. so I'm happy to help what would you say the basic tenets of working with chronic invisible illness are um, well 
it kind of like working with trauma, like therapists or anyone else working with this issue have to do a little bit of personal work in acknowledging that there's bad stuff that happens out of the blue sometimes and there's nothing we can do to stop it. So that's a heavy reality to sit with. Yeah. But until we can do that, we can't really sit with somebody who's dealing with these things. That makes complete sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the big one. There's a lot of heavy stuff. I'll try, I'll try to throw some fun things in. (laughs) (laughs) If it's too heavy, that's okay. You know, we're here to talk about it. So don't, don't worry. I mean, it's all um, stuff that I think other people need to know regardless. So, um, so what sorts of health diagnoses would be considered an invisible illness? Pretty much anything that you can't see. So that could be, and it's a little fuzzy because sometimes an invisible illness will become visible as in like somebody is in a big flare and they need a cane or they need some other assistive device that you can see, or they've developed a limp or some trouble using a hand or things like that. But often autoimmune diseases are invisible, things like diabetes, things like asthma. I mentioned traumatic brain injury. Uh, Also, the, I don't know if you've heard of, people are referring to people who have COVID and are having a, a hard time with symptoms even months later. They're calling them long haulers. Mm-hmm. But that's a potential invisible, potentially chronic illness. We don't know how long that's going to last, but there's a lot of people dealing with that now, you know, with extreme fatigue or dizziness or GI problems, like all kinds of things are coming from it. So we'll have to see how that unfolds as well. That's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, I mean, this is kind of a self-explanatory question, but why are invisible illnesses difficult to recognize? Um, Because we don't see them. (laughs) And we live in a society that doesn't like to talk about these things very much. So I think it also doesn't come up. There's kind of an assumption that if unless somebody's in a wheelchair, they're probably fine. You know, that if somebody looks, quote unquote, healthy, then they must be okay. Um, sort of like with pronouns, like people tend to assume pronouns and only now is it becoming slightly more common to ask, you know, so we tend to assume health, but we don't really check in and some people don't want to reveal it and that gets come, but still we just don't, we often don't think that, oh, this person could be sick. Okay. I would imagine there is a significant amount of grief when an individual is diagnosed with a chronic invisible illness. What might that look like? Yeah, so initially it can look like, you know, any kind of grief, you know, sort of, um, you can throw in the stages there if you want, like denial and stuff. (laughs) But, But yeah, but it's also an ongoing grief. So every time you run up against something that you used to be able to do, but you can't do now, or you develop a new symptom, or you try a new treatment and it doesn't work, or somebody comes and offers you a solution. And then for a moment, you're like, oh, maybe that'll work. Like maybe if I stick kale in my ear, it'll really do the trick. And then you realize, oh, wait, you know, it's probably not. And so there's just this ongoing grieving process. Now talk to me about the feelings of isolation one may have after a diagnosis. Yeah, I think this is especially true for younger people because it's just when you get in your 60s, 70s, 80s, more people are talking about medical issues, you know, or they talk about their doctor's visits or it's kind of an assumption that that's probably going on in your peer group. But when you're younger, other people aren't thinking about, oh, am I going to get that referral to the specialist or am I going to get my medication approved or I need to set some money aside because I can't afford this copay or I can't go to this party because it's too late. And if I stay up too late, my symptoms are going to flare. Like there's just a, it's just like a mental and emotional burden that other people might not be dealing with. And that can feel lonely. And then also the sense that other people don't want to hear about it. Like they don't want to hear that you're in pain yet again or that you have to cancel again. 
that kind of thing. I can see how that could be incredibly isolating for sure. What is the role of stress in chronic invisible illness and how might the stress be managed? Yeah, so stress, I mean, I'm not a medical doctor, but I, I think there's <laughs> a thing with stress and like cortisol and inflammation and right. it, stress doesn't make the body happy, right? It's, right? It aggravates a lot of things. And so it also tends to aggravate chronic illnesses so it's this double whammy that you're already in a stressful situation. And then either during that or right after that, your body starts acting up, which is also stressful. So, you know, that's a lot to manage. So there's trying to manage the physical symptoms however you can, pulling out the heating pads or the Epsom salts or whatever medications you need or going to your doctor. Like there's all of the physical management. And then there's also, okay, how am I going to manage my stress? Am I going to distract myself the best I can? Am I going to like find some friends to make me laugh? Am I going to, you know, do my breathing exercises, whatever, you know, any combination of things that kind of gets you through. I would think that if somebody was say experiencing a flare up and they were having difficulty calming those symptoms that that would lead to more stress, which then leads to more symptoms, which then leads to more stress and symptoms, kind of a feedback loop there. Oh, yeah. And then if you throw in maybe a doctor isn't responsive or um, doesn't believe you or, or you don't have insurance and you can't get to the doctor right now, you know, there's, there's so many layers to all of it. Yeah. Okay. What are the biggest adjustments one must make when diagnosed with a chronic invisible illness? Yeah. There's a heck of a lot of planning. <laughs> it becomes yeah. harder to be spontaneous, depending on your illness. But there tends to be a need to plan ahead, whether it's planning to fill your medications on time so you have them and you don't run out. Um, could be looking at the weather to make sure it's not too hot or too cold you know, that you don't overheat or symptoms act up in the cold, uh, planning meals, planning, is there something I can eat? Maybe I have food restrictions. Can I go to this restaurant? You know, or how many things can I do in a week before I just hit the wall and I can't do anymore? Yeah. It's just so much planning. That's one of the biggest yeah. ones. Yeah. Okay. What is the best way to support somebody with a chronic invisible illness? Yeah, um, there are, there's lots of ways. One is to be patient like, and to understand that things are unpredictable. Chronic, well, everything in life is unpredictable. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, chronically ill bodies are very unpredictable. And so having some patience and flexibility, um, there's often a meme kind of going around chronic illness, social media, like, um, you know, I still want to come, just don't stop, please don't stop inviting me, even if I don't go, like that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, just letting people know that they're still thought of and that they're they're part of a community, even if they can't be physically there in that particular time, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Offering to do specific tasks that might be hard, like, hey, can I come over and say hi and take out your trash, you know, or do the litter box or something or drop off some groceries. You know, a little trickier with COVID now to do these things, but. Yeah, yeah, it certainly complicates everything. It does, yeah. What about frustrations? What What are some frustrations one might have when diagnosed with a chronic invisible illness? And I know this is probably, you know, the list is probably endless on this. <laughs> <laughs> How much time do you have again? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think I've mentioned kind of dealing with the medical community, right? Mm -hmm. So dealing with, like, can I get my insurance to cover things? Can I get doctors to believe me? Some For some diseases, it can take like seven years to get diagnosed, sometimes wow. more, of just like going from doctor to doctor or waiting for the, the medical research to catch up. There's a lot of diseases that are still, they don't know a lot about them or they're still fairly rare 
or people think they're rare, but they're actually not if we had better tests or doctors had more awareness of the symptoms. Sometimes it's just luck of the draw. You end up with a doctor who happened to read about that thing in med school, and so and they recognize that you have it. Um, sometimes you don't. So there's that. There's You find a good doctor, they can do their thing, and then insurance won't cover what the doctor recommends, or they make you try other medications before that. Or, and then there's the frustrations of just like, my body won't do what I want it to do. Or my body did it yesterday, why can't it do it today? You know, mm-hmm. That kind of thing. And there's a lot more, but we'll, we'll stop there. <laughs> there is one more. Um, one more big one is good-hearted people with good intentions offering suggestions for what, like, things that could cure you or things that could heal you. It's kind of annoying. Most, yeah, most people with chronic illness have tried just about everything they can think of and more. And so hearing that just kind of can convey a message. It's not intentional, but but people can hear that as you're not doing enough. It's your fault. You're failing somehow. You know, if you just worked harder, you wouldn't be so sick. You know, and I, I know that it's it's kind of a mental defense to say like, oh, well, if if I got sick, if I did that thing, then I would be okay. You know, try, trying to juggle worldview to, to sort of protect against that idea that terrible things can happen and there's something mm-hmm. we can do about it and bodies can just go haywire. So, but it it's such a tricky one and it's like the number one complaint I hear. It's like if anyone says something about a chronic illness, they're like, and then I get all kinds of advice, you know, um, everything from yoga to, you know, Eating gold, gold, eating gold. I don't know, all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> eating gold, really? <laughs> I don't know. No, I mean, gold injections are like a thing. Don't try that at home. Um, but that's really? a thing I've heard suggested for things. Yeah, there's weird. there's so much weird stuff out there. But I'm not wow. a medical doctor. Don't do these things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please, listeners, do not go inject gold. Yeah, don't do that. You are releasing me of any liability. <laughs> um. Um, now you have several chronic and invisible illnesses Um, from your point of view what do you think folks need to know about chronic invisible illness yeah that well first of all it it can happen to anybody at any age and most and there's pretty much nothing you can do about it sometimes. Like there are risk factors you can try to manage and you can do your stuff. But even marathon runners who eat a perfectly clean diet, you know, they can get invisible illnesses too. So it's, it's just being aware of that fact. And also that, well, that it's harder than it looks. Yeah, and that more people have it than you think. So you probably know at least one person, if not more, who is living with something that is taking a lot of their energy and their time. Yeah, Yeah. I've got several people close to me who uh, struggle with those things. Um, So what does it typically mean for people in terms of their day-to-day living? Well, you know, we talked before about planning, so it gets harder to be spontaneous. There's a lot of thought that goes into things. Um, There's maybe some more caution that goes into things because, you know, an average 22-year-old can probably stay up all night, eat some Taco Bell in the morning, and be totally fine, right? But if you're a 22-year-old and you're living with, like, type 1 diabetes, that could be a disaster. So it's it's really having to have that thoughtfulness and that mindfulness, but also balancing that with having a life. So that gets challenging. Yeah, absolutely. When somebody is having a bad flare-up day, for example, are there things that someone might want to avoid saying to somebody? Yeah. Get well soon. 
<laughs> it's hard. I know it's a good intention, you know, or um, sometimes the next day, are you better yet? Are you feeling better? And no pressure. No pressure. Right? <laughs> and then what, so, but like, what do they mean by better? Do they mean like, oh, I'm right. totally healed or like I can limp into work today? So, so those kinds of things, they have good intentions, but they might not come across very well, you know, because that person may be saying, like, I'm never going to get well, like, right. you know, but you could say something like, I hope your pain eases soon, you know, a little bit, or I hope you get a little relief, you know, something like that is more realistic. Yeah. Okay. So basically what you're saying is, like, not imposing unreasonable standards like feel better yeah. <laughs> you know because all that's pretty relative when it comes to these things it sounds like mm-hmm. yeah so halloween's coming up i'd imagine a lot of folks with chronic invisible illnesses feel like they have to wear a mask at times could you speak to that a little bit more yeah the mask wearing is really common and it takes a ton of energy. You know, um, we have a very smiley society. <laughs> uh, I think I think I read somewhere that McDonald's had to train McDonald's workers in other countries to smile, like the cashiers, uh, more than than they would normally do because the American standard of of smiliness is so high. Smiliness is a very technical term. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> But there's this idea, like, we expect people to have a a certain, like, friendly and cheerful attitude. And when you're in incredible pain or you're really exhausted, that's kind of the last thing you want to do. But it's expected. Or if you don't do it, people are going to start asking a lot of questions or get really concerned or, you know, try to get into your business and you don't want them to. You know, that kind of thing. So the mask is really common, you know, and almost to the point where people can get so used to wearing it that it interferes with doctors really believing them. You know, somebody who lives at like an eight or nine on the pain scale is probably not going to look like they're at eight or nine on the pain scale. They're probably going to look like they're just doing their day because they've gotten so good at just living with it and hiding it. And so... It's hard, and then they don't necessarily get believed you know, that that's where their pain actually is. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, uh, a little birdie told me that I should ask you about spoon theory. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So spoon theory, I'm going to mispronounce her last name because I've never actually heard it. Um, but Christine... I'm sorry, Christine, Miserandino. She came up with it uh, years ago now. I'm getting old. But the short story is she was sitting in like a diner and trying to explain to a friend why she didn't have the same ability to do stuff that her friend did. And she like held up a bunch of spoons and said, you know, okay, so this is how much energy you have in a day, you know, and use the spoons to represent different activities And then she explained, like, okay, so you start with this many spoons, but I don't start with that many spoons. Like, and it's going to take me more spoons to take a shower and more spoons to cook breakfast and more spoons to drive to work. You know, and so it's it's basically just been used as a shorthand for energy level. Um, There's there's kind of a cute modern version of uh, what what this person calls the unchargeables, like their battery just doesn't charge the way that it should. You know, but spoon theory has been around so long and people call themselves spoonies who have chronic illnesses. Yeah, not everybody, but some, some people do. And it's, it's just become like a, a quick way to communicate that concept. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. My next question is, are you sure... I'm not a toaster. Do you have a piece of bread? We could test it. I don't. I'm just going to take your word for it. That you're not a <laughs> <laughs> I'm the reason why sure you're a human. 
only partially. Cyborg, part toaster, part human, maybe. Yeah, that's true. Could be a okay. A, I can't think of. I was trying to combine toaster and human, and I don't think I have a good version yet. Toaster Holman? and human. A Houston. 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 Yeah. Houston. Okay. It could be a Houston. The reason why I bring this up is because uh, Dr. Joe in their book um, talks about, and I think it's the first chapter, about how we cannot be a toaster because essentially we cannot break. Yeah. Would you say that's a fair um, summary? <laughs> yeah, because uh, it's just speaking to the the idea that we've got this inner core that is pretty indestructible. You know, we've, we've made it through everything in our life so far and we can probably make it through everything else, even though there might be parts that get kind of, you know, beat up along the way, you know, like physically our body might not be working as well, or we might get really tired or emotionally drained, but there's like this one part that, that can't break. You know, toasters can break. Which is where they came from. Yeah, but not human. Yeah, when I used to work utilization review, um, the best advice that I got, and utilization review for those who don't know, is you're the person who is fighting the insurance company for coverage, especially in higher levels of care like uh, IOPs, PHPs, inpatient hospitalization. Um, you have to get and do regular reviews with the insurance company. Um, the best advice my boss ever gave me when I first started was sell the broken toaster. Um, so that's what I did. I've sold many a broken toaster. But anyway, that's kind of what it <laughs> reminded me of. What would you say are some common misconceptions about chronic invisible illnesses? So a big one is that they don't exist or they're all in your head that it's actually a mental health issue, you know, like a, a jump to assuming that it's a emotional issue instead of going through and, and doing all the testing possible to see, to rule out any medical things. You know, there's a, you know, Lyme disease is one example that got dismissed for years and years or that Lyme disease could only be the short-term thing. It couldn't be a long-term disease, you know, and so medical knowledge gradually evolves but there there is that big misconception especially initially that something must be a mental health issue um, fibromyalgia is another example mm -hmm. yeah okay um what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients such as those who are transgender undocumented or bipoc to name a few examples I have been working with transgender and non-binary clients since I was in my graduate training. I ended up um, in the sexual health clinic at the Dayton VA, and my supervisor was a psychologist and sex therapist, but happened to be like kind of an undercover um, like transgender advocate. And so we were in the sexual health clinic, but a lot of people were coming to us because they were trans. And so, and he had connection. This was before the VA had a directive to provide services to transgender veterans. And so, but he had friendly endocrinologists who would be willing to prescribe. And so we kind of had this, this transgender clinic going on as well as doing the sexual health stuff. And I learned a lot from him. Um, he had even been like the person there when people woke up from their surgery, like that kind of stuff. So he'd done this work for a while. Uh, and then since then just more and more experience because once you're the person who knows a little bit about something everybody sends those clients your way yeah. Yeah. plus you know my friends and that's part of my community so that's growing i've also if you haven't had a lot of experience with the military it's an extremely diverse group of people and so in the va i had a lot of experience with um bipoc people and just um, I had clients from the Philippines I had clients from Puerto Rico you know, who also served in the military like so it's, it's pretty broad clients who are homeless I've worked with sex workers 
and I'm trying to think who else. But yeah. And um, people also from, I don't like the word, the lifestyles is such a weird word, but I've <laughs> done a lot of work with burners. You know, people who go to Burning Man, yeah. people who are polyamorous, yeah. pagans, um, just pretty much weird people. I like weird people. I'm a weird person. So, yeah. And I don't mean weird in any bad way. Just people who might no, have a hard time. Good thing. Yeah, people who might have a hard time finding a therapist who understands and um, that they don't have to explain a lot or justify themselves. I know our my sound engineer is really going to appreciate um, this episode because uh, she was in the military. Oh. So I'm sure she'll love to hear all these things that you've done. Um, so talking a little bit more about your style in sessions, um, how are your sessions structured, if any? Yeah, it's, they're loosely structured. I mean, it depends if I'm, if I'm using like a, a, if I'm doing like prolonged exposure, there's a structure to those sessions, right? Or if I'm teaching a particular skill, there's a structure to that. But it tends to be pretty loose, like a, a check-in about homework, because I like to do homework. And then sort of a open time to explore things. And then at the end, usually trying to end with something that's a little more, people have different terms for it, but something positive, like some of the good things that happened, maybe some grounding work, and then talking about homework and goals and things for the next week. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um. Would you say you're directive or non-directive in your approach? It sounds like it depends on what you're using. Yeah, it depends. And I get a little more directive with time. Um, a first session, if I'm doing it like an intake with somebody, I do a lot of listening and not nearly as much talking as I might later. You know, um, As time goes on, I tend to talk a little bit more, especially if I'm teaching something like teaching a particular skill and that kind of stuff. So. Okay. Now you basically answered my next question is what people could expect from an initial session from you and on an ongoing basis. So thank you for that. Um, how would you say your clients would describe or experience you? Uh, a little wacky. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not fancy. Like I've, I'm not a fancy therapist. I've never had a fancy office. Now I'm, you know, all telehealth, so, but um, I've never worn fancy clothes. Like I'm pretty just sort of down to earth and very practical. Um, I, I hope they would say I'm warm and compassionate. Um, I've heard calm a lot, like calming or calm. And uh, yeah, uh, and I like to give homework. <laughs> I Homework do too. Homework and metaphors, yeah. <laughs> I came up with a metaphor and session the other day, and I wrote it down. I thought it was so good. I'm trying to remember what it was now, and I can't. That's why I wrote it down. Oh, um, I want to know. <laughs> now we're all in suspense, Noah. <laughs> I think it was it was in reference to gender dysphoria, and it was something like having something that you don't want on your body is like having a pimple that won't pop. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. It yeah. felt right in the moment. Yeah. Cause it works. You can carry it out to like gender euphoria, right? Cause when it right. finally does pop and you get that relief and then it's not there any and it heals and it's not there anymore. You're like, ah, exactly. so much better. But in the meantime, everybody can see it. It's painful, you know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like that one. Can I borrow that? Go for it. Okay. Please do. I'll credit you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Yeah, a lot more laughing than I, I don't think I've ever wept with a client, but I definitely can get a little teary eyed, you know, a little choked up. Yeah, and there is usually a lot of laughing in there. Not laughing at anything, but just like that sort of, sometimes it's kind of that dark humor. 
because we're just trying to work through something. But uh, I think I think laughter is a wonderful emotional release too, you know, especially after some really tense moments. And it's a great coping skill. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a coping skill that the LGBTQIA communities had for a long time. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We laugh, we play, we try to survive. Yeah. How do you define holding space for someone? I like that term, holding space. And and I, I see it almost as like, here comes a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it. But like, just sort of creating like a, a really big bowl. And like, you're not, you don't touch the person. You don't try to squish them or contain them. You really just kind of go to the farthest edges possible to say like, okay, I'm keeping an eye on things and you can do whatever you like in this place. You know, if you need to laugh or cry or talk or not talk, you know, but really being present and and taking a big step back. And so watching, but not not interfering, you know, just letting something play out you know, and and doing all that, like that with with soft eyes and compassion. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. I like the way you described it to the furthest edges that they go it's really cool thanks i get a lot of interesting answers for that one what about uh what's the best advice you ever received from a supervisor uh be honest like i i had just started like my first real therapist job at the va and um and i asked you know what what do I do? Like, I'm, you know, I'm not a veteran. Like, how do I get people to trust me? And I'd had a little bit of experience with that, but, and it was a combat stress clinic. So we were doing all combat trauma and yeah, supervisor said, just be honest. And that has served me really well, whether it's, Hey, I looked at my calendar wrong and I got our dates mixed up. Can we please reschedule, you know, that, like, to like bigger things so yeah it's good advice yeah what have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice i know my world's gotten bigger because i've i've gotten to step into so many people's lives <laughs> i've learned about so many different kinds of jobs i've learned about so many different ways to be in the world and I'm just constantly impressed with the variety of human experience and the resilience of humans. Like the, the things that we can endure, the things that we can figure out, that we can adapt to, it's really amazing. Yeah. And what about you? What do you do to take care of you? Yeah. So I'm an introvert who needs a lot of alone time, like non-people time. And so I try to get as much of that as I need to. I, um, on a good day, like I'll, I might do some yoga or some mindfulness practice. Like mindfulness has been a huge help. There's a, I, ha I hesitate to call it a workout program, but it's called autoimmune strong. I guess I'll give it a plug. And you can use Dr. Joe as a code if you want for a discount. But it's this trainer developed a program of exercises that is intended not to set off a flare or be less likely to set off a flare. And so it's really long and really slow. And my overachiever self is really impatient and wants to do it all. <laughs> but, but so far, it's been incredibly helpful. So I had to really adjust because my idea of taking care of myself used to be I'll go do a static dance for eight hours a week. I'll go do Pilates two hours. I'll go to yoga three times. I'll go kayaking and I'll go hiking like all in a week and I'll clean my house and cook dinner, you know, but that can't be it anymore. So I have to like take everything a lot slower and there is a lot of good television out there so, <laughs> yeah, and there I love is. to read. 
So, so those things have been getting me through, especially lately. Um, like fluffy romance novels are actually really soothing right now. Are they the pandemic? Are you talking about the ones with like a Fabio character on the front with like long flowing hair blowing in the wind? Not quite like that. Like <laughs> there's some newer ones and that are more diverse and and um, and a little bit less Fabio. But still, like you know, <laughs> my grandmother everything. used to read those. <laughs> yeah. No, and those have their place too. But they tend to have a happy ending, and they tend not to be political. And like it can be a nice way to just escape into something for a little bit. Yeah. Cool. Well, how would you define happiness? Oh. Happiness is, it's an emotion state. So it's fleeting, right? It comes and goes just like every other emotion. And I don't think it's meant to stick around. I, I think what, what a lot of people, when they hear happiness or they're, or they're thinking about happiness, actually it's more contentment or satisfaction um, fulfillment, like those kinds of words. The, those, I think, are longer states that can be around for a while. You know, being able to look at what you've done or how you're living your life or your relationships and feel like, hey, this is pretty good or I'm satisfied or I like the way I carried myself through that. That kind of thing. Cool. Now the next one's a little vulnerable. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? <laughs> There's probably a lot that I've blocked out. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> okay. Um, I have to really think. I know there was a time when I had gone out to get coffee with a colleague and I came back to work. And as I was getting out of her car, the back of my pants ripped. Oh, so, no. Like right down the middle seam. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> Luckily, I always had like a like a shawl with me because it gets cold in there. So I like, had it wrapped around my waist, like a lovely fashion statement. I was still at the VA. So I'm like <laughs> trying to walk into the building and I'm like asking my colleague, like, can you please walk behind me? And, like, <laughs> um, that sucks. Yeah. So I had to go and ask my supervisor, like, can I go home for a minute? <laughs> like, so I don't have to go through the rest of the day like this. But yeah, and he let me go home and made it through. But yeah, that was, that was a moment for sure. Um, another question, a new question this week is, do you do your own therapy? I do. I've been doing my own. Well, I, I don't. I'm not my own therapist, but <laughs> I, do go, I do go to therapy and I've gone to various kinds of therapy off and on since college, you know, um, well, actually since before college. Yeah. So I knew that I was going to go into mental health work. And so I was like, I got to figure out my own stuff. I got to have some therapy before I try mm -hmm. to help anybody else right now. And then over the years, I've gone back when I've needed to, um, something happens or I need a new skill or a touch up on something. Cool. Yeah. I, uh, I always say, don't trust a therapist who hasn't done their own therapy. <laughs> you have to know what it's like to be that yeah. vulnerable. Well, is there anything else that you would, you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? Really, I feel like I've said a lot. Um, you know, and I saw, I was like trying to think what my answer would be to that question, but um, really that I'm just, I'm here to help how I can. And I always appreciate opportunities to teach and supervise and do podcasts like this like I I like helping people one-on-one -on -one, but I also like helping people in um in larger numbers and like making that more exponential which is part of why I write um, I'm working on a new book now that's actually wow. for healers and helpers so called awesome. you can't you can't fix them because they're not broken and so nice. <laughs> trying to put together everything that I've learned along the way in however many years it's been 
But yeah, I think I think that's most of it. You'll have to keep me advised of when the book's out. That way I can let our um, listeners know. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Cool. Well, Dr. Joe, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. I really appreciate you participating. Um, and, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep referring to you. I always do. Oh, I'll keep referring to you, too. So I'm always. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Marshall Lyles, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist Supervisor, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor, Registered Play Therapist Supervisor, and EMDR IA Approved Consultant on his specialty, Trauma-Informed Centre and Other Expressive Therapies. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T dot com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. Next Quest Podcasts, brought to you by Next Quest Counseling, relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash next quest podcast or making a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash about next quest podcast until next question this is noah garcia signing off